You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Today, we're all looking for ways to save. That's why I want to tell you about HealthLock. What is HealthLock? HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance and monitors your medical claims as they come in, then flags any hidden errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To save, visit healthlock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's healthlock.com. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And the Justice Department says Trump can be sued for the January 6th insurrection. We have an amazing show for you today. Tennessee State Representative Gloria Johnson, a member of the Tennessee Three, stops by to talk to us about all the fuckery in her workplace. Then we'll talk to Cook Political Report's Amy Walter about the Senate and the congressional maps in 2023 and 2024. But first, we have the host of the Bulwark podcast, Charlie Sykes. Welcome to Fast Politics, Charlie Sykes. It is great to be back, Molly. We're delighted to have you. So, I mean, I feel like every week is slightly worse, but (laughs) the thing I want to read you and start with, because this feels like a real line in the sand here, April 18th, is a tweet from Lloyd Blankfein. You may remember Lloyd Blankfein. Does this man have the temperament to be president? Disney is lucky. They don't have the launch codes. <laughs> Hippie Lloyd Blankfein. That is a sick burn. Ron DeSantis doubling down on Disney, threatening them, I'm going to put a prison next to you. It's, mm-hmm. It is one of these strange moves where, no, I don't mean to be snarky here, but does anybody actually remember what this fight is actually about? This is one of those things where it's vindictiveness <laughs> for the sake of vindictiveness. The fight is about the fight. I don't know how many people, how many voters would even remember that this is because Disney criticized his don't say gay bill and this is his retaliation. But he keeps <laughs> up. Being the ante. And here's the thing, Molly. 
all Disney has to do at this point is put out a press release saying, you know, we're just concerned about the business climate in Florida. And we're thinking of moving some of our tens of thousands of jobs out of the state. And Ron DeSantis is toast. I mean, it's just it is so self-defeating. But this is this culture in the Republican Party where Donald Trump has steel balls. So Ron DeSantis has to say, no, I have titanium balls. There's no end to it. And you, you see that Trump is now trolling DeSantis about this. I'm true social. You know how bad it is when Donald Trump is trolling you, saying you're getting killed by Disney and, you know, this is going to blow up in your face. And I have to tell you, I hate myself for saying this, but Trump is not completely wrong about how <laughs> dumb a political move this is. You really know the machinations here better than I do. How did Ron DeSantis get here? You know, this was the great white hope of the Republican Party up until a few weeks ago. I mean, obviously not. There must have been decisions that led him to this point. See, this is an interesting question because you always think that, well, you, you had to have thought about this, right? I mean, you, you had to know what you were <laughs> right. getting into. You had to kind of know that somehow you needed to navigate the MAGA base. You needed to be able to take on Trump without alienating the MAGA base. And, right. And yet it's more and more apparent that Ron DeSantis didn't really see this coming. I mean, look, it, it feels like a cliche to say that, that you know, political history is littered with all of these governors who think they could be president and then found that, hey, you know, when the light came on, they were not ready for prime time. It's kind of hard to scale up. I mean, there's, you know, there's Governor Rick Perry and, you know, I mean, there's President Rick Perry and there's, you know, President Scott Walker. I mean, remember President Rudy, Rudy Giuliani and all of these guys. Well, Ron DeSantis is now kind of like, hey, and I'm I'm the next guy. He made, made the calculation that he had to go as far right as possible, that he had to out-Trump Trump. But the thing is that he doesn't have Trump's reptilian instinct. Right. And so he goes through the motions and he's now gotten himself in a fight with Disney. And as that is not going well, he is now escalating his fight against Bud Light because, <laughs> yes. of course, we can't let a culture war spat go unexploited. I want to point out that is the Bush family, the Anheuser-Busch family, right? The Anheuser-Busch family. Republican mega donors. And so there are some Republicans <laughs> who are saying. back. Well, exactly. There and, and and this is one of this is one of these strange moments where all of the Republican candidates are all in on the Bud Light boycott, <laughs> with the exception of Donald Trump, who once right. again is going like, I no, I don't, you know, these guys give all I'll the just... money to Republicans. It's like he's purely <laughs> transactional. But you know, this is the thing about Ron DeSantis is that Ron DeSantis is a guy who is trying to act like if I was a culture war zealot, what would I do? And there's always kind of doesn't get it right. You know what I'm saying? It's, yeah. like, it's like when Mitt Romney said, I am severely conservative. Let's put on a lizard mask and like, I am lizard man. <laughs> no one is more of a lizard than me. Like, and you know, can't get the tongue quite right. <laughs> right. That's what strikes me is that if you are completely pretending, then it's not going to be authentic, right? I think that's one of his problems. Yeah, exactly. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, which is a thing that I constantly get drawn into discussions about, and every time I'm like, what are you talking about? The whole supposition of DeSantis's shtick was that he was going to run to the right of Donald Trump on policy. Mm-hmm. But Donald Trump and policy, do they really belong in the same sentence? 
That is an excellent question, because I think that anyone who thinks that Republican politics is about ideas or policies has completely missed the transformation of the party, because uh, this is a post-ideas party. There was a time when Daniel Patrick Moynihan said, you know, Republicans are the party of ideas. Well, that was like way decades ago. (laughs) Now, the Republican Party is a party that did not even have a platform in 2020. It is about posturing. It is about attitude. It is about Vibes. Vibes, exactly. Who can inflict more pain on the people you hate? So, yes, thinking that you can run on policy is just incredibly naive. But I but I think part of it is that DeSantis gets the part about I need to punch people in the nose harder than anybody else. Right. So he, he has that, but he's not terribly skillful in picking who he's going to punch in the nose. It's worked for him so far what he's done. You know, you pick on gays, you know, you pick on CRT. But going after Disney feels and going after Bud Light feels like you're about to turn yourself into a cartoon character. The thing that I sort of am sad that the Republican Party has completely abandoned is this sort of capitalism (laughs) at all. (laughs) Like, I wish they were still into that. I wonder whether they were ever into it, actually, in in, in (laughs) retrospect. No, but you're but you're right. Or I would look at it slightly differently, at least into free markets. Right. And and this is one of the ironies of of someone like Ron DeSantis or the Heritage Foundation is they will say we are for freedom. But, you know, free markets not really working for us anymore. So what you have is this kind of this authoritarian desire to use the power of the state nakedly to punish people. And I think that, you know, Donald Trump, you know, stands up and he says, I am your retribution. And sitting down in Tallahassee, Ron DeSantis hears that and goes, well, I have to find somebody that I can be the retribution against. What people really want is they want vindictiveness. They want me to go and inflict pain on someone. That's how we got here. That's how we got Ron DeSantis thinking that he can slingshot his way to the presidency by harassing the happiest place on earth. I mean, Molly, <laughs> I'm just true. not sure how that works. <laughs> the optics are really bad. Boss, let's go to war with Moana. Let's go to war with Frozen. Let's go to war with Mickey Mouse. Let's go to war with Sleeping Beauty. I mean, what? He also got married at Disney World. Well, didn't everyone? I mean, I... <laughs> I mean, I did not. (laughs) I mean, I just feel like, I mean, he had some love for the place, the happiest place on earth. Well, okay, just from the the most transactional point of view, (laughs) think about the the number of employees, the tax base, the economic impact of this company. Now, maybe he thinks, well, they're trapped. They can't go anywhere. They have too much invested here. But- It is a very rare moment for the governor of a state to go after one of the state's, you know, premier economic assets, leaving aside the cultural issue or the fact that the vast majority of Americans love Disney World. They love it. They want to take their kids to Epcot. And so he's down there going, well. Oh, maybe we'll make it so that families who, you know, pack up their their minivans and drive from Oklahoma to get to uh, to get to Disney World will have you know nightmarish tolls and traffic <laughs> right, problems. Right, and right. you'll have to worry about, you know, the rapists in the state prison next door. Right. Because who is he actually targeting? He's saying, I'm going to make it miserable for all these American families 
who are going to spend too much money right. at Disney World so their kids have an experience. I mean, I have to tell you, Molly, the political genius of this escapes me. <laughs> I actually think this is indicative of a larger problem in the Republican Party. For example, so a lot of the things that these Republican candidates are excited about. And again, I'm thinking about Tim Scott running to the right of Trump on abortion. A lot of these things are just not, I mean, like we're seeing this polling about abortion, you know, it turns out that ending Roe has made this very popular, mm -hmm. right? Americans may have been on the fence before, but now they are not. They're just sort of getting into these culture war issues that aren't necessarily winners. What do you think the play here is? Well, there may not be a play. It just may be that they're trapped. Is that This is a party that is held hostage by its own base. But now on abortion and guns, they're not just held hostage by the Republican base. They're held hostage by a very vocal section of the base. Republican voters are not totally down with banning the abortion pill. Right. Republican voters are not necessarily in favor of a constitutional carry where you can carry concealed weapons without a permit. So what you have is these vocal minorities on the extremes who have a veto power over the rest of the party. So you ask, what is the play? The play is the people like Tim Scott and, and Ron DeSantis think they have to play to that faction within the faction. And maybe they'll figure out, well, when I get to the general election, I'll worry about that later. Well, that's going to be a very difficult pivot for them to do if they spend the next year pandering to the crazies. This is a question I actually asked Mark McKinnon, and I'm going to ask you it, too, because I feel like you both are uniquely qualified to answer this. Your fantasy, the Republican Party becomes normal again. How does that happen? Well, Mark's a much smarter guy than, than I am. I have to say that I am beyond fantasies because I'm beyond illusions. I don't know that in my lifetime I'm going to see the Republican Party return to anything like a normal, rational party. I, I, I think the damage that's been done has been too profound because, you know, it's it's misleading to think that all of the problems of the party flow from Donald Trump. A lot of them right. do. I mean, a lot of them do. And I do think that Donald Trump is a unique existential threat. But the Republican Party has a base problem. And this is going to continue for a very long time, maybe even decades. Think of the number of people who have grown up in this environment who think that this is the way politics are, that, th that this is the way you treat people, that you don't actually have to have policies, you don't actually have to get anything done. Uh, you have an entire generation that's growing up, you know, has grown up since Donald Trump came down that golden escalator and talked about Mexican rapists. They're going to be around, Molly. They're going to be around for a very, very long time. Think about the impact that the politics of 1968 have had on, on politics afterwards and the way that we're still kind of in that shadow, still kind of hung over from that. Well, that was how many years ago now? So 30, 40, 50 years from now, I think we're still going to have the hangover to the way this culture has been broken by what we're going through right now. So I don't have a fantasy to tell you the truth. I guess my fantasy is anybody but Trump and then let's move on from there. You know, anybody other than this narcissistic, sociopathic, chronic liar who, in fact, would torch the Constitution if he thought it was him 
is in in his interest. Virtually anybody else is, by our lowered standards, is more normal, not necessarily normal, but more normal. So let's break the fever of the absolute crazy. Let's get to a point where we actually don't have to care about what Mike Lindell says or Steve Bannon or Marjorie Taylor Greene or Paul Gosar, in which we don't necessarily have the Kevin McCarthy's of the world who have to empower, you know, the most irrational, erratic crazies in his caucus. Maybe that would be my fantasy, but that's not a that's not much of a fantasy. I'm not hoping for unicorns. I'm just, you know, maybe hoping for a really shaggy, flea-ridden donkey who is not Donald Trump. That's all I can say. Were you shocked at how stupid that McCarthy speech on the floor was yesterday? I'm constantly being <laughs> shocked about how stupid it all is. So, so no, it's like, okay, this is Kevin McCarthy, who has told us who he is over and over again. Right. You know, the scary part is that Kevin McCarthy is is about to potentially tank the U.S. economy with the debt crisis. Yeah, <laughs> yes, not excited for that. That's concerning because... I don't think that he's smart enough to know how to navigate this. And I don't think he has the political power. And so he's steering us right toward the iceberg. And there are very, very few responsible adults who are going to run in and, you know, grab the helm before he crashes it. Yeah, that is the nightmare fuel that keeps me up because the American economy is in a very, even though it's doing okay, it's still in a very precarious spot. Why have worse nightmare fuel for you? (laughs) Oh, go, tell me. My nightmare fuel is that we now live in a country where if I ring the wrong doorbell or if I'm trying to make a U-turn and I pull into the wrong driveway while I'm visiting my kids in Southern Maryland, that somebody's going to shoot me. Yeah. What happened twice? We have 400 million guns in this country. And, you know, I am old enough to remember when even the NRA was concerned about gun safety and being responsible. And it's basically the NRA has said, fuck it. Let's just push as many guns out there as possible. Let's make them into the ultimate phallic symbols. And then let's encourage people to uh, actively fear and hate one another and assume that anyone that approaches us who looks at us funny is dangerous. What could possibly happen? So, you know, and I'm sure you've had this conversation as well. You know, after after every single mass shooting, after every single atrocity, you go, well, will this be the turning point? Will this wake us up? And you know, the answer is no. And so nothing is going to happen to change that, at least for some time. And so I have lots of night. I have lots of nightmare fuel, but that's that's my nightmare fuel that I have on the bedside table these days. Guns are a situation where their Republicans don't want to come to the table. Right. Because the base loves it and they think of any of kind base. of compromise. Right. But and they think of any kind of compromise as a failure. But if you think about it, the labor shortage in this country, I mean, the visual of Sarah Sanders Mm. signing a child labor bill just to not have to have immigrants in this country. I mean, that's like stuff from another century. There is an element in which it's become not just from another century, but but a cartoon of another century. I mean, yeah. it's like, I think we need to go back and read Dickens more because we're going to be living in that world. <laughs> this is an interesting point because they create because of their impulses they create these virtually insoluble problems and then like okay you know we demagogue the whole issue of you know building the wall and everything and not having these immigrants who are going to come in and rape your women and take your jobs and like wait we have a terrible labor shortage so of course we're going to put 12 year old white kids to work now right yeah yeah 
I don't, it's unbelievable. Well, I mean, we're sort of Brexit on a smaller scale, right? Of stupid or larger. Oh, I think we are way past Brexit. <laughs> I think Bre- Brexit eats our dust. <laughs> All of this stuff. Charlie, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you'll come back. It's always fun. Thank you so much, Marlon. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. Today, we're all looking for ways to save, especially on medical bills. That's why I want to tell you about HealthLock. When I first heard about it, I thought, it's about time. This makes sense. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance and monitors your medical claims as they come in for savings. Let's say you, your spouse, or kids see the doctor or other medical provider. When your claims come in, HealthLock automatically renews them and flags any errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. So you pay only what you owe. This is your money you're saving. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped members save more than $130 million. I get it. Medical billing errors can happen, but you should be able to pay with confidence. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden medical bill errors. To save, visit healthlock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's healthlock.com. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Gloria Johnson is a member of the Tennessee State House of Representatives. Welcome to Fast Politics, Representative Gloria Johnson. Well, thank you, and thank you for having me. 
I wanted to have you for a number of reasons, not just because you are now the most famous. You and the Justins are the three most famous state reps ever to come out of the state of Tennessee. I guess so. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's hard to think about that. <laughs> I wanted to ask you a little bit about your experience now. Just about the protest. When it started, did you have any sense that things would mushroom into what they are now? Oh, absolutely not. Because typically, you know, I got here, we we started session. I think we started session. I can't remember what time we started it that day, nine o'clock. I got here well before eight because I knew that people were going to be gathering for the protest and I wanted to talk to folks who were here. And, you know, I spent a lot of time that morning talking to moms who had dropped their kids off at school and were, you know, just teary eyed telling me that it's terrifying to drop their kids off, wondering if they're going to be okay when they go to pick them up or when they, you know, are they going to come home on the bus and just talk to so many parents who are there for that very reason. You know, they want to do everything they can. So this is not something that the children have to worry about and parents have to worry about. In my generation, worrying about school shootings was not a thing. But this generation has grown up with that potential and that possibility. Yeah, I mean, just insane. So you have been in the legislature longer than the two Justins. You were in the legislature. Did you sort of sub out and then come back? I live in East Tennessee. Justin Pearson's from West Tennessee. Justin Jones is from Metal, Nashville. They come from very blue districts. I am from Red East Tennessee. And so I won in 2012. So I served in 2013 and 14. I was extremely vocal, as you can imagine. (laughs) And they spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to beat me. Oh, wow. And so I won that first time by a little under 300 votes. In the next election in 2014, they beat me by about 180 votes. And then in 2016, they beat me by 150 votes. And in 2018, I came back and won by 2,500 votes. Oh, I love that. So interesting. Let's just talk about the protest for a minute, because this is like the first time that anyone has ever been expelled from the Tennessee State House for decorum violations, right? Right. Previously, it was things that were literal crime. Right. <laughs> Except for back in 1866, where there was expulsion because some people refused to show up to vote for the 14th Amendment. Right. But the last ones were robbery, fraud. Prostitution, right? Well, the last one was sexual harassment of 22 women. Right. And also there were campaign finance violations that all came out. So there were all of that as well. Yeah. He sounds great. That guy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He he was great. Yeah. One of the things that I was struck by with this protest and the thing that I related to you about your story was that you have been an incredibly good ally to these two Justins. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how the way in which you were able to, I don't know, I see myself in you as like being Uh able to be a good ally to younger people who will ultimately, hopefully, you know, you don't have the lived experience they do, but you are able to, you know, hold space for them. 
Right. Well, you know, I taught school. I taught teenagers for 27 years. I worked with emotionally disturbed teenagers, which is what I say. That's what prepared me to work in the Tennessee legislature. (laughs) But I mean, I've always and even after I retired, I did fellowships and internships, training young organizers to fight for issues or to fight for, you know, candidates, work on campaigns and, and how to organize. And I've been working with Justin Jones for probably 10 years Because when I was first here, he was coming here as a student from Fisk who was advocating for using student IDs to for as voting IDs. And so then after that, I got heavily involved in the expansion of Medicaid. Even when I was not in office, I was the state lead for OFA. And our our function at that point was mainly to try to organize to expand Medicaid in Tennessee. So that was something that Justin Jones and I worked on together. He was always there for all of those events. And then, of course, back in 2020, 2021, when we were trying to have the bust of Nathan Bedford Forrest, a guy who made millions off the slave trade, who slaughtered 300 surrendering black soldiers at Fort Pillow, who became the first Grand Wizard of the KKK. He had a bust in the place of honor in our Capitol that our members had to walk past to get to the House and Senate floor. They had a, Justin Jones was one of the organizers for a 62-day protest on, on Legislative Plaza, and I spent a lot of time there with them as well. So I've known him well. Justin Pearson, I have known for less time, but I know about his hard work on the pipeline in Memphis and what they were able to do there. So as soon as I saw that he was running, I, you know, I got behind him, got to know him and and welcomed him here. And these these young people, they're so smart, they're so well informed, they're passionate about the issues in their district and they're passionate about the people that they support. And I feel it's imperative that we lift these voices. They are so important in the Tennessee House, especially because those are voices that are not being heard. And I'm a 60-year-old white woman, and you know I still have a lot to say, but I'm going to do everything I can to bring in young people and to lift those voices, because it's just critically important that we're hearing every voice in this state, and not just those at the top, the wealthy and well-connected. What does the Tennessee State House look like now? Protests are still going on. I mean, paint us a sort of scene of what's happening right now. I don't think there's a day they haven't been here. Yesterday, Reverend Barber was here with hundreds of pastors and other folks. They marched from the Methodist Church all the way to the Capitol and were present all night last night while we were on the House floor. We've also had a group that have been here since last Thursday who are Republicans for gun safety. They say they'll be here every day. And we have had something going on today. I ran into, in the hallway, Margot Price, Allison Russell, Cheryl Crow. Some musicians are here meeting with the head of the Senate, meeting with the governor, bringing a letter about gun violence. So it's, and today we have a, this afternoon at five, there's going to be a human chain from Vanderbilt Hospital to the Capitol. You and the two Justins did not disappear the way the Republicans had perhaps hoped. Oh, no, absolutely not. We are going to continue this. Certainly, we welcome talking to the media because it's a way to talk about this issue. And by talking about this issue, We brought so many people together. We have so much support from other states and their state houses and state senates. 
Those folks have been reaching out to us. And obviously the folks from Kentucky are reaching out because of the bank shooting that just happened. And they're like, we want to collaborate. We want to talk about this. And I think some of the state reps are coming down today for our human chain. So it started conversation between states at a federal level, like Gabby Gifford's organization has reached out to us. So we just want to continue to build partners and build the movement so we can do something about gun violence, which is now the number one killer of our children. How are those Republicans feeling? Well, because <laughs> I'm reading more and more, we didn't want to do it. Someone else pushed us to do it. Anonymous members saying, well, we had, we really, you know, we just wanted to teach them a lot. I mean, seems like a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking. Did you hear the leaked recording of their caucus though? <laughs> yes, I did. That, that was not, we're sorry. That, that was, we didn't do it hard enough. And how dare these people be in our hallowed halls? And they were at war and we were the enemy. And I'm just thinking, how can you be doing the work of the people when all you're focused on is punishing us? I mean, you know, we had this horrible shooting in Nashville and their first act is to expel members who were trying to speak up against gun violence. Their first action should have been doing something about gun violence, not expelling members who wanted to talk about it. And, and this is who they are. I mean, you heard on that tape, they're destroying our way of life. Right. And, you know, they are the enemy. And I came off of that thinking it sounded like a bunch of Confederates strategizing for the Civil War. I mean, yeah. why are they focusing on us and why are they not focusing on policy that Tennessee families want and need? Yeah, no, I mean, it's just amazing. Where are you now with sort of building your war chest and also kind of galvanizing Tennessee liberals to run against? I mean, some of these people probably can be uh, primary or not primary, but beaten in the general. I, I can tell you that I just spoke over the weekend. I spoke to uh, it was a statewide dinner for the Tennessee Federation of Democratic Women. And whenever I go, you know, I always make that ask to run for office because right now this house is only 10 percent women. And that's horrifying to me. And this state is 52% women. We need to be 52% of the House. The fact that women, you know, because the elections have been so hideous, especially against me, the attacks are just ugly. Now, they'll have a picture of me covered in blood spatter saying that my friends are violent criminals. And, you know, nobody wants those attacks, especially women and bringing it to their family. Right. right. So it's hard to get women to step up. But at, at that, after that dinner, so many people came up to me and said, hey, I'm running against so-and-so Republican this year. And I mean, more than way more than I've ever heard before. And it was just wonderful to hear that, you know, that they're yeah. already thinking about they're already making plans. They're already, you know, sort of tracking what they're what the person that they're going to run against is doing in the House. And it's a great thing to see. People are really, really energized and we're going to keep that energy up. We want good candidates to run and challenge these folks because even their own members, like I said, Republicans for gun reform have been here since last week. And they said they're staying as long as we stay. And in my district, I've read I've run red flag laws and state safe storage laws for the last couple of sessions. And they've been killed in committee on a party line vote 
But I polled red flag laws in my district in deep red East Tennessee, and even a majority of Republicans support red flag laws. So it's supported by a majority of Republicans, independents, and Democrats. They are missing the boat on this because they're listening to the NRA and the Tennessee Firearms Association, and they are absolutely not listening to their own constituents and their own voters in many cases. Yeah, that is kind of incredible. I mean, we're seeing this everywhere in this Republican Party is that we're seeing Republicans who are completely way to the right of their constituents. Yeah. And there were all those people were here last night. They stayed for three and a half hours because we had a bill on the floor to arm teachers. <laughs> right. I remember. So stupid. So Reverend Barber was here. All those pastors were here. Lots of people were here. They went into session an hour early. We went in at four. We usually go in at five on Mondays, and we usually go till about eight. We went in at four. It gets to 727 or something like that. We were right at the bill that everybody wanted to hear about arming teachers, that they had waited three and a half hours for and come from all over the country, actually, to hear that bill. They rolled it to the next calendar. Which is tomorrow or... Well, well, yeah, it's tomorrow, but everything's iffy because we've moved into a flow motion where the rules are suspended and we speed up everything. That'd be any time, really. Jesse made me watch a video, a local news video about the Tennessee State House. Uh-huh. Our producer, because he's mean. There is a lot of really, and we're not on cable television, so I can say this, fucked up stuff that's going on over there. Can you explain? The members can, in fact do crazy stuff with bills, right? Oh, they absolutely do crazy stuff. You probably watched the Phil Williams interview with me and Rep Dixie. Yes. And they do this all the time. Um, we, in the Senate, they have roll call votes. In the House, we have voice votes. So many times we will take a voice vote and the, and the yays or the nays are clearly louder and they'll call it the other way. They'll call, the chairman will call it the way they want to call it. Okay, And, uh, you know, there's nothing you can do because you can't request a roll call vote after the vote's been taken. Right. And and if we if you want to request a roll call vote, you have to have three people raise your raise their hand in the committee. If someone in the committee wants to request a roll call vote, three people have to raise their hand. We only have two, sometimes one Democrat in certain committees. So we can't even get to three to ask for a roll call vote. And if you're a member and, you, and you're bringing your bill and you want a roll call vote, you have to say it before you say anything else. Because if you say anything else, they say, no, you already started talking. You can't get a roll call vote. However, one of their members will walk up and it's a different story. Adding untimely filed amendments. If we have an untimely filed amendment, it's likely they will refuse to hear it. However, if they do, they hear it. They, our speaker has instituted a new rule this session, this year, uh, for the 113th, that we only have five minutes to debate a bill. Like if when I have questions for the sponsor of a bill, I have five minutes. And what that means is, and this happened multiple times last night, I might ask a 30-second question, and then the member will read the entire bill or something and eat up the other four and a half minutes, and then the discussion is over. 
and they don't even answer the question part of it most of the time. Yeah, I mean, that is not great. Yeah, and one year, a couple years back, there was a particularly heinous, I think it might have been the heartbeat bill, right. total ban on abortion. And I stood on the House floor for 45 minutes with my hand raised and they never called on. Yeah. Well. And part of that is a function of them having the supermajority. Right. They can vote and pass anything if we're not there. And they, you know, technically they don't have to let us talk. But I mean, it's what are they so afraid of by doing some in-depth debate on their legislation, on their policies? You know, when I bring a bill, I'm proud of the policy and I'll stand up and talk about it for days if you want. You know, I'm not afraid of hard questions. I will answer them. But they seem terrified to debate the issues they bring to the floor. Yeah. I mean, just insane. Gloria, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you will come back. Oh, absolutely. I appreciate you having me on. And I just hope we can keep this issue of gun violence in the forefront because it is terrorizing children, it's terrorizing communities, and we we are the only nation in the world with this problem, and we can fix it if we have the will. Thank you, Gloria. Amy Walter is the editor-in-chief of the Cook Political Report. Welcome to Fast Politics, Amy Walter. Thank you for having me. I am very excited. We were on a panel together on a TV show and I thought, oh, she's so smart. And I want to ask, I want to get to ask her questions. So I was really excited to get you on here. You're very kind. Thank you. (laughs) It's true. I wanted to start by talking to you about this interesting 2024 contest. Let's just get right into it. 2024, we could talk about the Mississippi governor's race if you want, right? That's 2023. Yeah. We could talk (laughs) about Kentucky governor's race. That's actually interesting, but you're right. Where most people are focusing on is 2024. Sure. I get it. But let's just for one second, talk about that Mississippi governor's race because James Carville was on our last episode and he was saying that there's a real damn pickup opportunity there. Is that wishful thinking? What do you think? Look, I think This is a state that, not surprisingly, has a pretty significant divide when it comes to race. And in this state, if you are able to mobilize African-American voters as a Democrat and win over a smallish percent of white voters, there's a path, but it's a very, very narrow path. And I would say, you know, you can see the pathway to getting to like 47 percent, maybe even 48. Getting to 50 is a lot harder. I think what Democrats were hoping is that the current governor would have a serious primary or maybe he would be dragged into a runoff. Um, that's what happened in his his first campaign. That's not happening now. But you know, look, having the last name Presley, living in a time we're in where things are so intense and so intensely polarized, um, motivating voters in a state that has been afflicted by a number of issues, especially along racial lines, if you think about Jackson and the water crisis and Medicare. The refusal to expand Medicare, right? Yep. But if I were to say, what would be for Democrats, probably the more important and impressive race would be in Kentucky, where you have a Democratic governor Mm -hmm. and in a state that nobody would call blue. Right now, he's favored for re-election. And looking at how Governor Bashir 
is able to hold on to a red state, I think becomes an, an important playbook. Now, it's not going to work everywhere or for everyone in the same way that Glenn Youngkin is trying to sell his experience of winning in a blue state like Virginia. The difference with Youngkin, though, is, well, he can't run for re-election. <laughs> so right. you do it one time, but you don't get to your proof of concept, right, is, is, is hard. But for for Bashir winning a re-election in this really red state with a Democrat in the White House, that's not an easy thing to do. And if he does continue to lead and then ultimately win re-election, he's going to be talked about a lot when we go to the who's in the next tier of potential Democratic candidates for president. He'll be right up there. He can have the experience of being heavily scrutinized and, you know, I mean, not not perhaps not careful what you wish for. Let's get to the brass tacks here of 2024, because they don't seem to do things that look like they they are caring too much about getting elected. Right. Like they seem to go in on unpopular ideas, if that makes sense, without much care one way or the other. But this map is not a great map. For Democrats, it's not a great map. Yeah, that's right. It's it's a it's a pretty terrible map, actually, yeah. for Democrats. And remember, the 2022 map was just great for Democrats. So I'm not taking anything away from the success that those incumbent Democrats had in holding on in a tough year, um, you know, certainly the headwinds of the economy and an unpopular president, but at least they were in bluish, purplish states. You know, Sherrod Brown and John Tester and Joe Manchin have to run in, in red states and then pretty deep red states. And then we've got, you know, Pennsylvania, Michigan and Wisconsin. Now, look, all of those incumbents, obviously, there's not an incumbent in Michigan, but in the other two states, Casey and Baldwin, pretty good track record of success. But Arizona, you tell me. Who even knows what's going to happen there, too, because there's kind of a lawlessness with the uh, Republican Party. I mean, whatever that looks like. Yeah. Who who comes out of a primary on the Republican side? And does cinema run for re-election? Those will tell us. It's like we got to sort of wait until we know those things um, before we can at all even slightly confident about predicting what's going to happen. But the map itself, even just so take out Arizona, just look at West Virginia and Ohio and Montana. Those are the three biggest challenges for Democrats right now. And those are three places where you could argue that having a candidate who wins the primary, who's kind of outside of the mainstream or seen as, you know, maybe not the strongest candidate is not necessarily a recipe for losing. J.D. Vance still won by about six points. Right. But Dr. Oz did not. Correct. So it matters in Arizona. I would say it matters in Pennsylvania. It matters in Wisconsin. It matters in places that are really, really evenly divided in states that have a pretty strong tilt one way or the other. Uh, It's just getting harder to call out your opponent as being too extreme. Right. Which is 
pretty scary stuff if you think about it ultimately. Can you just do another minute for me on, in my mind, West Virginia looks like the worst of those states for Democrats because it's so red and also because it's so provincial and strange in certain ways, like their governor switch parties. It seems like the normal rules don't necessarily apply there. Do you agree? And and what's your take on West Virginia? That's a good question. And and you can look at this two ways. One, you look and you say, well, Joe Manchin has gotten elected here not once, not twice, but three times. Yeah. Um, and so he and he was the, the former governor. So to the provincial part, he has there's evidence that he has a base there that is sort of impervious to national political trends and winds. At the same time, I think about somebody like Heidi Heitkamp in the um, 2018 midterm election, where she too was a statewide elected official. She too won in an overwhelmingly red state. But at some point, even though she was well-liked, the partisanship of the state catches up with you. And I think there were a lot of voters who voted for her Republican opponent who would tell pollsters, yeah, sure, I, I like Heidi Heitkamp. Yeah, I don't have a problem with her, but I, I do have a problem with Democrats or we need to support Trump. And that's where you get into some real challenges with Manchin, right? Like it's not it's not just he's got to outperform Biden in the state by six or seven <laughs> points. He has to outperform him by like 40 <laughs> points. Right. That is right. That is really really hard. Now, he is getting some help, as you pointed out, from the fact that Republicans are fighting amongst themselves with Club for Growth versus the whatever the other forces on the other side, whether it's the Mitch McConnell <laughs> super PAC or the establishment rhinos or whatever. But Justice, I think, will be the nominee. But in, in the case that he's not, well, that's a, probably good news for Manchin, right? So that is just tough. And as I said, it's it's getting harder and harder to win in a presidential year if you are a candidate that is from a different that the state is voting for a different party for president than your party. So Susan Collins was the only one, uh, the only senator to win in a state that the presidential nominee of your own party didn't carry since 2016. So in 2016, every state voted for the Senate the same way they voted for president. 2020, every state but Maine. Is it going to be John Tester? Could it be Sherrod Brown? Could it be Joe Manchin? Sure. All three of them? That would be pretty remarkable. Not saying it can't happen, but it's that's going against some pretty long odds. Democrats have a real opportunity. What happened in New York and in California, to a lesser extent, was that uh, the Democratic State Party really... I want to say something mean, but I'm going to say underperformed, perhaps because of the governor's foibles, perhaps because of the state party chair's incompetence. But whatever the reason, there are a number of seats in New York that are occupied by Republicans, but were won by Joe Biden. Can we talk about that? One of which is now occupied by the one, the only George Santos. 
Yeah. Didn't he just win an Academy Award the other month for something? Yeah. Yeah. You know, the thing that strikes me about him is I can't forget the time when the 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 reporting about him yelling at an aide about how he shouldn't get the cheap Botox. Don't remember that. <laughs> anyway, so uh, talk to us about that. To me, the biggest question is, can he survive a primary? And as you know, there's already one well, maybe I shouldn't assume this. I'm the dork that knows these things. There's already <laughs> one candidate who's announced on the Republican side that he'll challenge Santos. I guess the question is how many candidates ultimately jump in. But boy, I just don't know that there's a path for Santos, even through a, a primary. But I can't remember. Is it still a late primary? It's a D plus two. Uh, oh, is no, but the primary is, used to right. be in September, but I don't, I don't know if that's the case. Be. Whatever it is, it might be a while before we know who the nominee is going to be. So if you're a Democrat here, you have to be someone who is running, not just as a, oh, look, I'm running against the serial fabulist George Santos, but can be a candidate that would win in a race that didn't feature Santos, right? Because as you said, D, D plus two, that's that's officially a Biden seat, but that's not like uh, overwhelmingly Democratic seat. As we saw with Trump in the in the past, like Long Island is a pretty good is pretty good Trump territory. Um, so I wouldn't put that one in the bag, especially if, if Santos is not the nominee. But, you know, you've got those upstate districts that were also Biden districts, like the, the one that Sean Patrick Maloney, the former DCCC chair, moved into, lost that seat. <laughs> so you've got that one. And then the the other Long Island seat that is is even much more Democratic. I th- the Hamptons, right? No, the one that is closer into the city. I think it's, is it Suffolk? Oh, yeah. Part of the reasoning here f- for Democrats is, look, as you said, the governor was a big drag, the Hochul campaign, big drag on the entire party in 2022, 2024, you're going to have presidential election turnout's going to be up. And especially in some of these districts that have significant black and Latino population, those voters are going to show up. They didn't show up in the last midterm. That should help in, in some of those districts. But beating an incumbent is still not easy. Yeah. Just in covering the house, I'm always amazed at party committees that say, oh, it's okay. We lost it this time, but you know, we'll get it back next year. Well, maybe you will. Mm -hmm. And in some cases it's true. There are times where, you know, the district is just so partisan that yeah, in a fluke, you won it, but you probably can't hold on to it. But some of these people hold on and they hold on year after year after year. You can't assume that all of those New York districts flip back. And then there's California, which has the other tranche of Biden Republicans, some of them who have been winning and winning and winning, even though they were supposed to be just, you know, a one termer when they right. first got the seat. What do you think about like Gillibrand? In what way? <laughs> what does like, that even mean? <laughs> that was like a Rorschach test. Like, tell me what you think about goldfish crackers. What is your opinion on them? Hmm. Do you think that Gillibrand could theoretically be primaried or no? Oh, oh, okay. I guess so. It just doesn't seem as if there's that much energy there. This is what's 
really interesting when you look at the two parties and the ways in which they're furthest out from the center parts of their party deal with the um, incumbents. Many more Republicans went on to challenge incumbents who they saw as, you know, not not strong enough, not loyal enough to Donald Trump, not loyal enough to conservatism. Remember after the Tea Party took power in yeah. 2009 and 10, you had a lot of incumbents that got knocked off. It has been rarer on the Democratic side. And when it does happen, trying to think about if there's been a statewide race in recent memory, I'm going through my database and I, I just can't find it. So, so no, <laughs> the short answer is no. No, have we had like a Senate candidate lose from the left, Senate incumbent versus a Republican losing from the right. And we can all go through a number. Dick Luger and whoever I remember Bennett in Utah, Murkowski in Alaska. Yeah. Though she ultimately haha, had the last laugh. She ultimately won. She but she had to she did. But you just don't have that, at least in a significant way on the Democratic side for, for right. a statewide contest. And even at the House level, you look at the places where those on the left have been successful. And some of it has been as much about age versus ideology, right? This person's been there too long. This person isn't sort of paying enough attention to the district versus this person is not sufficiently liberal. Right. But we've sort of never seen that, right? I just cannot think of that right now. I'm sure that I'm missing someone, but I'm old now. I don't remember anything. <laughs> Amy it's getting Walter. harder and harder to keep. <laughs> you please come back. Yes, I will try. I will try if I can remember it. This is what happens after fifty. You, everything goes. Oh, everything good. goes. I can't wait. Don't let anyone tell you that fifty is the new forty because I've been forty and this is not forty. Just know that. Just know it. And now your moment of fuckery. Molly Jung Fast. Jesse Cannon. This Ron DeSantis fellow, he hangs out with such nice people. I mean, this is like one of these stories. It's it's like so upsetting because it's an underage girl, but it's also just unbelievably stupid. A major DeSantis donor who DeSantis nominated to Florida's Board of Governors, the body which oversees the state's university system. A real shock to everyone, right? That guy... A guy they say kind of made DeSantis. That guy, you probably shouldn't have that guy near children. <laughs> what did he do? He's accused of having an inappropriate relationship with an underage teen. His name is Kent Sermon. He eventually killed himself after the girl's father turned down a five-figure son in hush money deal and reported him to the police instead. He is a prominent DeSantis ally and GOP donor based in Jacksonville, Florida, of course. And he was bribing this little girl with Taylor Swift concert tickets if she showed him. Anyway, the point is, <laughs> this is really, these are the people who are supposedly protecting your children and stopping grooming. But in fact, every Republican accusation is a confession. 
That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Tired of pickup truck bed chaos? Meet Decked, game-changing USA-made full bed-length drawers for tools and gear. Waterproof, dustproof, lockable, secure. Whether you're working, hunting, fishing, camping, or just getting out of town. And introducing Decked Deco cases. Tough, modular, problem-solving cases built for the truck, job site, campsite, or garage. Say goodbye to random bins and tie-downs. Order now at Decked.com slash iHeart for free shipping. Decked, your truck, your rules. Decked.com forward slash iHeart. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Today, we're all looking for ways to save. That's why I want to tell you about HealthLock. What is HealthLock? HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance and monitors your medical claims as they come in, then flags any hidden errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To save, visit healthlock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's HealthLock.com.